You're listening to Partners United on Resource Governance, brought to you by Shehu Musa Yaradua Foundation. Hello, listeners. Welcome to another episode of the Partners United podcast on Resource Governance. Today's episode is on the promoting climate consciousness in extractive communities. And I will be speaking with Professor Lenny Barini Zabe. Zabe is both an academic and an environmental activist. He has done a lot of research and works on ways of building climate resilience through ecosystem restoration. Welcome, Professor Zabe, to today's podcast. Thank you, sir. It is my pleasure to join this conversation. So much uh, pleasure having you on this talk today. Now, I would like you to just tell us what you think about how much is known about climate change in local extractive communities, communities in the oil fields and in other areas where some form or one form or the other of extractive action is going on. Right. The, the reality is that extractive communities suffer the double impact of climate change and environmental degradation. But relatively, not much is known about climate change in the communities for some obvious reasons. And one of those reasons is the subsisting cultural practices and belief systems that tend to obscure the understanding of climate change uh, impact on extractive communities, as well as the way they, they, they tend to adapt to um, climate change. So, for example, th- there are conflicts between cultures, certain cultures and climate change adaptive measures. And one of those conflicts is that people tend to prefer meals cooked with firewood um, to those cooked with clay stoves, for example, because they feel that uh, foods cooked with firewood are tastier um, and then the aroma is more attractive than those cooked with uh, clean stoves. Uh, secondly, rural farmers in those communities uh, also believe that um, farming se- seasons must not start until they experience the first rain that now occurs far into uh, the spring rather than early March due to climate change. Such belief systems tend to obscure the understanding of climate change in in extractive communities. As a result, little is known about climate change in extractive communities, but they, they feel the impact, the double impact, and they can they can, you know, tell you that um, when it rains, we are experiencing flooding um, that we, we, we don't normally experience in the past. But putting, you know, the, the face to it is always uh, challenging to them. So it, it therefore requires some, some level of um, sustained sensitization um, and support. Um, all right, thank you for for that. Um, I, I was getting worried when you began to 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 speak about cultural barriers to understanding 
uh, climate change and actions to be taken and then cultural conflicts. Uh, but when you say that people prefer foods cooked with firewood uh, because of the aroma of the food, especially jollof rice, and because of they kind of like this smoky, smoky taste from, from such foods, and I now fully understand what you mean. Um, but I have a concern. Uh, you said that farmers tend to believe that farming should not begin until after the first rains. Recently, we got some information from the meteorological unit of the government saying, about, talk about when rains will begin to fall and that after the rains, people should wait because that would not be sustained rainfall. That rain is going to come at different periods, different months in the year for different regions. Now, how can our people begin to understand uh, going by the rainfall, when to plant or when not to plant. If you say they're going to plant when the first rains come and the first rains are coming and the government says don't plant with the first rains, what will the farmers do? Well, the, the reality is that um, there is need for um, local farmers to um, adapt to the changing climate. Um, if not, they will suffer a lot of wastage by... Um, uh, the loss of uh, cultivated crops. For example, in, in most of the communities, they, uh, they practice shifting cultivation. And so their farm areas are usually divided into um, sections. So they move in mass to a particular section like this year and cultivate and then the following year, they move to another section in mass. And then they also have a definite time of the year that they, they start to, to prepare their land for, for planting. And, and even if it is not written anywhere, that had been entrenched in their culture, in, the, in their oral tradition. And they have, they have received such farming pattern from their forebears, you know, by, you know, practicing with them right from childhood, what uh, sociologists will call scaffolding. So they stick, they stick to that. And so, for example, if the meteorological agency is saying, don't plant, um, don't plant in December, for example, in, in the Ogoni area, which is usually the time that um, farmers go to um, cut their, 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 their grasses in their, in their farmland and start preparing the, the farm for cultivation. It, it, will be, it will be strange to them, to the farmers, uh, and somehow they will defy, they will ignore such advice. And so that's why there is need for some level of extension services, um, community outreach programs about the reality of climate change and the need to shift their, their farming pattern and approaches. What you're saying is that climate change has overturned the usefulness of cultural agricultural calendars. Uh, in other words, farmers cannot depend on what they've been doing over the years because things have changed and they're not what they used to be. Uh, but you also mentioned the need for extension services. And we do know that uh, over the past few years, uh, the, this, there's a very high shortage of extension officers. Does this mean that we don't have uh, much hope about 
getting our farmers or people in communities to cope with the with climate change? What? How can this kind of knowledge be shared? How can we improve on climate change consciousness if the extension officers and services are not available? Well, I, I think um, because majority, most of the food, over 80% of the food we consume in, in Nigeria is produced by smallholder farmers. We need to place premium importance on, on what they do. The government needs to care about how they are faring in terms of um, their production process. Um, so, and one key element of um, communicating innovations in animal and plant um, production, as well as value addition opportunities to the local farmers, is by extension service. Like like you said, um, these days they are quite scarce. I hardly see them around. The few that are still there are confined to um, their offices, which is very, very unfortunate. So what that means is that in order to surmount the challenges of climate change, in order to sustain food production through the smallholder farmers, in order to um, guarantee food um, sovereignty and food security, there is absolute need to provide all necessary support to smallholder farmers. And one of such supports will be providing them with um, extension services. So sensitization is very key. Um, and, and such sensitization can be done um, even at the community level. There is need to raise uh, consciousness about climate change, the impact of climate change in local communities, and the need for them to, to adapt by engaging in using heat resist, resistant strains or varieties of, of crops, um, climate change uh, smart um, varieties that are indigenous or that are not uh, um, having any any form of um, uh, impact on their production system. So uh, varieties like the GMO use should be discouraged. Thank you so much uh, for making that clarification at the end. I was going to ask you, when you mentioned climate smart agriculture, are you referring to what is popular, the way uh, this is always on that, often understood as being of the genetically modified variety. We do know clearly that indigenous varieties that are adapted to difficult situations like where there's water stress, with high salinity, and where there's uh, lack of rainfall, you know, that there are crops like that that are um, indigenous to the areas where they are needed to be cultivated. So we spent quite a bit of time talking about agriculture uh, in impacted uh, communities, but I think the climate impacts in extractive communities go beyond uh, the effect that this, these impacts have on agriculture. Um, I would like to shift our conversation to these other areas, and one of which is uh, especially in Niger Delta, we had in the last uh, intergovernmental panel 
report, the sixth report on climate change that was issued in August 2021. Uh, that sea level rise is something that's going to continue growing into the future. It's not going to stop anytime soon. And we do know also that the Niger Delta, the Nigerian coastline, 850 kilometers coastline is very vulnerable to sea level rise. Uh, can you tell us a bit about what this would mean to extractive communities on the coastlines of Nigeria, especially in Niger Delta, if sea level rise continues? Yeah, definitely it's going to be a serious uh, tragedy in, in those communities because in the Niger Delta, like you rightly mentioned, most communities are just um, um, less than few meter, less than a meter above sea level. It's only a few sections of the delta that is about four meters or six meters above sea level. What that means is that a greater percentage of uh, land in the Niger Delta is exposed to or vulnerable to um, flooding um, as a consequence of sea level rise. Um, so there is going to be massive flooding because the Niger Delta is dissected by creeks, rivers, and, and rivulets, as well as estuaries. So what that means is that the, the Niger Delta will actually um, be a major depositional uh, section of, of the country in terms of the, the, the rise in sea level. And uh, so the fringing um, Repallian communities will be flooded, be submerged, and they are going to lose um, alluvial land for agriculture, and that will further complicate the, the we have complicate access to poor access to um, um, food and and agricultural land. Of course, there is going to be. Um, of course, the, the, the people of those communities are, are experiencing uh, temperature surges. And a, a synergy between uh, increasing global temperature and heat generated by oil production uh, flares tax in the oil producing communities um, pose serious challenge to the people living in, in those uh, impacted communities. Um, beyond flooding and uh, temperature surges, uh, extractive community dwellers also suffer um, the loss of biodiversity, which of course will lead to the loss of traditional livelihood opportunities. And so that will further deepen poverty cycles. Um, there is also going to be extensive erosion uh, associated with flooding. And then certainly there will be rural push and urban pull um, that will, will make um, coastal cities like Portaco, Wari, and Calabar to, to be um, overpopulated. And that will further stress um, some sensitive wetlands in those um, cities because there will be that tendency of the rural people um, who are suffering the double impact of climate change and, and environmental degradation to you know move into the cities in search of a, a, a quote greener greener pastures that um, 
they will never find. So uh, that would lead to overcrowding coastal cities in the Niger Delta. And of course, there will be height, there will be housing challenge for those who move from local communities into the cities. In order to surmount the problem of housing, since they don't have money to, to rent um, conventional apartments, they will move into um, wetland areas like mangrove areas to begin to build um, sediment to, to build to, to build their uh, makeshift houses on, on them. And that will further stress um, biodiversity, stress the, 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 the ecosystems that their livelihoods will depend on. And so it's going to be double tragedy. Uh, you gave us a lot of food for thought about the impacts on communities other than agriculture. You spoke about poverty cycles being reinforced. You talk about extensive erosion associated with flooding, displacement of rural population from coastal areas to cities. Uh, you did mention that they may be going to search for greener pastures, but it, but it does sound like they, they would just be searching for safety, safety, searching for higher grounds. But then you mentioned about wetlands being embedded or converted for temporary housing by the displaced persons and the related impacted ecosystems. Uh, now, these are all very difficult and very dangerous issues to facing these, rural com these coastal communities. Um, now, knowing that communities are facing displacement in Nigeria, not just from the coast, but also from the north, caused by uh, due to increased water stress and in increased uh, uh, desertification. Uh, do you think that government is aware of these problems? And if you think they're aware of the problem, what do you think government is doing to help communities overcome these kind of challenges? Well, I think everybody is aware. <laughs> everybody is aware of the, the, the problem. Um, either in the from the north to the south, east to the west. Um, what we are lacking presently is a structured or systematic um, program that is robust and holistic in nature to take on board um, all the issues collectively and in a manner that is sustainable. Like you said. It is natural for for humans, including animals, to to move from one one place to another, to move from their natural habitat or their natural communities to where they think um, environmental conditions are more favorable or access to um, resources. So. The, the, the government is yet to put in place very robust, sustainable programs. Um, of course, there are, there are piecemeal attempts um, from government, even at the federal, state, and local government level, um, to, to deal with these many environmental-related issues. 
Um, for example, we have the the government have made very ambitious um, uh, promise at COP26, and our nationally determined contribution is also very, very ambitious. The question is, what, what are the mechanisms put in place to, to achieving all those commitments? So I, I think there is need for paradigm shift. There is need for coordinated efforts between the state government and the, the federal government. There is need for very sustainable mechanism that will actually deal with most of these issues. And, and again, there's also need to um, fund institutions that have very direct responsibility when it comes to um, managing environmental issues. For example, the meteorological agency uh, needs to be adequately funded to be able to um, monitor weather patterns and give um, uh, advisory uh, um, uh, uh, information to the citizens and to other government agencies for planning purposes. And again, the issue of population, taking stock of our population and understanding the, the migration pattern will also help in, in addressing some of the the issues we have outlined. We have had a lot to chew on today with regards to climate change impact on extractive communities. It's not really sounding good at all. We can see a lot of issues looming ahead. But I would like us to move into something a bit, another track that could be a bit more promising. Now, talking about raising consciousness and awareness in these communities, uh, is there any way this could be done, starting with the children, maybe in eco clubs and schools, or how else can what how can we what can we can be done to build consciousness in the upcoming generation, since they are the ones to face the climate impacts that we'll be talking about? Because we 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 have of. Children and the young ones. Uh, it is important to get them involved um, as early as possible. So there will be need to um, start to rebuild eco clubs or environmental clubs in schools um, as a strategic approach of promoting community-led consciousness, um, and not just the schools. There is also need to escalate such sensitization platform, voluntary sensitization platform um, to informal settings. So by creating informal or out-of-school um, environmental clubs. So in other words, if we are able to, to create both formal and informal clubs, um, there will be sustainable um, sensitization or community education outreach that will raise the consciousness of the rural community dwellers with regard to climate change, with regard to environmental best practices, and um, informing them to be good uh, stewards, environmental stewards, um, that will contribute to conserving 
Um, they are surrounding, conserving biodiversity, conserving um, ecosystems that they are well being depend on. So why do I say there's need for not just the former school clubs, but also the uh, informal clubs? The reason is that um, sometimes club members uh, in these in these schools, when they graduate and they they move out of school, they become redundant in terms of rendering that voluntary service. The voluntary service they were rendering when they were in school. So. If there, there are informal settings, informal platforms that when school club members graduate from school, they will be able to leverage to continue to render those voluntary environmental protection services in the communities, such as sensitizing members of the communities about um, issues that undermine the functionality of the environment. Issues relating to preserving um, subsisting um, biodiversity in those communities. Then it, it, will be, it will be useful and it will increase consciousness in the communities. And, and again, apart from enlarging the community of volunteers, for environmental protection. It will also enable a kind of linkage between the, the formal and informal schools, school clubs for peer learning and as, as well as for uh, joint action uh, efforts. And what that means is that the mere act of coupling the formal and informal clubs together to undertake peer learning and carry out joint action will lead to preserving indigenous knowledge as well as promoting community adaptive um, innovations, which I think we, we, we really need um, indigenous knowledge in terms of uh, adaptation. And then um, we also need community-driven adaptive measures to the challenge of climate change. Thank you so much, Isabel. You raised a lot of issues that would take us a whole day to dissect. And that's why I want to thank you for being with us today and for a very illuminating conversation. This is where we draw the curtain on today's episode. A big thank you to our listeners. We look forward to having you join us in our next episode. Have a very beautiful day. Bye-bye. Please visit partnersunited.org to join the conversation on environmental justice. To report any issues that have threatened your environment, please visit www.reports.nhrc.gov.ng or blow the whistle at www.reports.corruption.org. You can also visit homef.org for useful advocacy resources on climate change, food systems, freshwater ecosystem, and other socio-ecological issues. 